0: Many of you might be familiar with the work of literature, A Tale of Two Cities, and a commentator by the name of McLaren uh, titled his commentary on this section, A Song of Two Cities. You'll hear the song sung at the beginning. Isaiah 26, hear now God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock for he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, low to the ground, casts it to the dust. The foot tramples it The feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. If favor is shown to the wicked, He does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly and does not see the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire for your adversaries consume them. O Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you have indeed done for us all our works." O Lord our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us, but your name alone we bring to remembrance. They are dead, they will not live, they are shades, they will not arise. To that end you have visited them with destruction and wiped out all remembrance of them. But you have increased the nation, O Lord, you have increased the nation, you are glorified, you have enlarged all the borders of the land. O Lord, in distress they sought you. They poured out a whisper when your discipline was upon them. Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth. So were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant, we writhed, but we have given birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth. The inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Your dead shall live their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light and the earth will give birth to the dead. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity and the Lord will disclose the blood shed on it And no more, and will no more cover its slain. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Let's pray that He would add His blessings to it. Our God, we come before you in prayer before this delivery of your word that you would superintend me, that you would open our hearts and our ears, that your spirit would increase our affections for you. Help us now, we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. I was reading a news article, it wasn't a news article, reading a, uh, a blog article by a, guy, by a guy named Garrett Kell, and he reminded me of this Sesame Street episode. He was talking about prophecy. So I watched Sesame Street this week. You might think, well, that makes sense. He's got a two and a half year old. No, I watched it alone. I was watching Sesame Street alone. And some of you may remember the older Sesame Street, there's a a segment where Grover is explaining the difference between near and far, and he's just running back and forth close to the camera, near, and then he does his little Muppet run away, and he's back away from the camera, far, and then he's, oh, you still don't know the difference? Near, far, and he's running back and forth getting tired. And Garrett Kell was using that illustration in Sesame Street to explain some of the nature of biblical prophecy. And I feel like as we read through Isaiah 26, we are running, Isaiah is running near, far, near, far, talking about things that are in the present, then talking about things that are in the future, then speaking about things that are going to happen in the future as if they are currently present. And there is this back and forth, back and forth. Uh, and it's important for us to recognize that because what God does in the future or is intending to do in the future affects how we view our present circumstances and turmoil. This, uh, this type of view of biblical prophecy and biblical narrative is throughout the scriptures. If you think of the Exodus you know, coming out of, Slavery in Egypt, that is is the near picture. The far picture is the far better Exodus through Jesus, out of slavery to sin. You know, the entry into the promised land, that's the near. But dirt in the Middle East is not the end, that's not enough. The real promised land is the new heavens and new earth. Across the globe, across the universe, there's these aspects of near and far. And again, having a view on the far, Has an effect on how we view the present. And so, what I want us to see as we move through this passage and and how we handle our present circumstances is that God's future salvation gives us peace in present turmoil. God's future salvation gives us peace in present turmoil. Well, as I mentioned, McLaren called this intro to Isaiah 26 a song of two cities, the song that's being sung in that day. Now, Remember, this song is in that day. When we read those words, oftentimes that's speaking of some future point. Well, where have we just come from in Isaiah 25? A feast, a a, a marriage supper, a a great feast. Um, I can't find the verse now that has the feast in Isaiah 25. Trust me, there's a feast. And they're singing a song at this party. Imagine being at a feast, and it's not just the greatness of the feast, but there is a song being sung at this great feast, this great party. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. This song has a strong city. And in verse 5, you see a different city. He has humbled the inhabitants of the height of the lofty city. Now, the words Jerusalem and Babylon aren't written here, but that is no doubt the idea that is present. The city of Jerusalem and the capital of the Babylonian Empire, Babylon itself, are the two cities in this song. I was interested in Babylon. You remember Saddam Hussein? I haven't heard his name in a while, but yeah, he used to be around. And Saddam Hussein was rebuilding the ruins of Babylon. And I, I went online to look at some pictures to see what it looked like currently. And it's it's such a bizarre contrast because you have this rubble that is just, you know, ruins from 2000, over 2,000 years ago, you know, rubble, just no stone left upon one another. But then you have this, you know, rebuilding project that was going on, and they're nice, square, uh, you could call them fresh buildings. Both the rubble and the new construction are vacant. Saddam Hussein was trying to rebuild Babylon, believing himself to be the heir of Nebuchadnezzar. Isn't it ironic that in the near of Isaiah's day, Babylon was brought to ruin eventually. And in the far of our current day, a ruler who attempted to rebuild Babylon was brought to ruin. The pattern that you see throughout history of the enemies of God, that there is this fall. But that's because Jerusalem and Babylon uh, and even the new Babylon, Saddam Hussein's, you know, palace, empty palace that's there, they are just typical. They are typical of a future city and a future nation. So what is the nature of this impenetrable city? It's the true new Israel, the the new heavens and new earth. If you look in verse 15, it's a city that is in a nation with enlarged borders. Verse 15, you have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You were glorified. You have enlarged all the borders of the land. The city that we're waiting for is not simply a restored Jerusalem after Babylon is defeated. It's not the current protection of the city of Jerusalem and, and nation of Israel, even though they are our, our American allies. That's not the end. The end is a nation whose borders go beyond Israel, who extend to the ends of the earth. That's the real true future Israel. And notice how its salvation, or notice the nature of its salvation. This is an interesting turn of phrase, interesting choice of words. In verse one, he sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Salvation is the protection. Normally you would think for a city to be protected, it would make sense to say the walls and bulwarks are its salvation. The city is protected because of its walls and bulwarks. Isaiah turns it around and says he sets up salvation for walls and bulwarks because it has nothing to do with an earthly wall. It has nothing to do with an earthly dam or trench or bulwark. Look at how this city exists, it's faith and trust. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. The walls and bulwarks that the city of God and the people of God have come through faith and trust and not through any earthly mechanism or personal mechanism of defense. I want to challenge you with this. Ask yourself, what walls and bulwarks am I trying to build? Are you building a wall of emotional detachment to protect yourself from the pain of whatever relationship it is? Are you trying to build a wall of money to try and protect against the uncertainty that exists day after day after day, month after month? Are you trying to build a wall of recreation or vacation? Everybody's working for the weekend. If I can just ski enough, if I can just go to enough nice places, if I can just have a good enough view, it will help assuage the pain and the difficulty of what I'm going through. I just need to get away for a while. That, that will be what I need. Are you trying to build a wall or maintain a wall of physical health? If I could just get some relief from these symptoms, I would, be, I would feel better. It would be better for me. Salvation is our wall and bulwark. God himself, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is our protection, nothing that we can produce. A lot of those things I mentioned are good in and of themselves, but they are not our wall. They are not our bulwark. God himself is, he sets up salvation. That is what I would call the nature of an impenetrable person. This is an impenetrable city, protected by walls and bulwarks. And it contains with it impenetrable people now it says it you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you now i'm not claiming that this is easy right we are penetrated we are afflicted and it gets to us and we sin as a result but god gives us a promise that you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you and you've had those experiences you have come to a point In your affliction, when you have had peace, it's happened. You've you've had it happen, and it can continue to happen. I just want to encourage you with that. Well, God gives this salvation to the city of his people, and then Isaiah, through the rest of the passage, he begins to contrast what I would call the citizens of each city, the future and present wicked and the future and present righteous. And he goes back and forth between the near, the the present, and the far future of both, the, the wicked and the righteous. And so that's what I want us to see in our second point as we move through the rest of the passage, is that God's salvation is not just told here in Isaiah in a song of two cities. Now we get the tale of the two peoples that are in the cities, the future and present wicked and the future and present righteous. Now, Quick side note here before we dive into wicked and righteous. Whenever the Bible is using the term righteous, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it is referring to someone who has had Christ's righteousness placed upon their account. They are not righteous in and of themselves. Whenever the passage is talking about the righteous, it's not saying someone who has done so great on their own that God sees them as fantastic. It's talking about someone who has recognized their sin, asked for forgiveness, and is declared righteous by God. Now, that then does have an effect in how they live their lives in following Christ's commands. But I just want us to realize that when we read wicked and righteous, what we're talking about. So, the present and future wicked. What do we see? In verse 10, that they are blind. If favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of of uprightness, he deals corruptly and does not see the majesty of the Lord. The wicked are blind to righteousness and God's majesty, and they're blind to God's hand. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire for your adversaries consume them. favor in a sense has been shown in this day to babylon they are a great worldly power who is going to come and take the israelites into exile favor is shown to the wicked but he is not learning righteousness this idea reminds us that the as the scripture says the sun rises on the godly and the ungodly the rain falls on the just and the unjust, but the, wicked, the nature of the wicked is to be blind to the patience and favor of God and to not learn righteousness. And so I challenge you with this, are you taking God's patience and favor for granted? You are sitting here in this worship service today, taking breath into your lungs And if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, God has granted you favor and patience, not yet executing the judgment that your sins deserve against you. He's given you an opportunity to learn righteousness. You don't have to remain blind. This passage is warning you, don't take God's patience and favor for granted because eventually, not only are the wicked blind and cannot see, they are exposed. In verse 21, Behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. That last section there, when God comes out, the earth will not be able to hide any iniquity. Remember after Cain killed Abel, God says, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. It's a figurative description that the sins that have been committed are in the earth in some way, uh, covered by the earth, but eventually it will all be brought up and exposed and the earth will not be able to cover all of the blood shed on it, all of the sins that there are, so to speak. And God is described here as coming out from his place when all of this is exposed. God is omnipresent, right? But God is described as coming out of his place, even though He is everywhere. Whenever leaf is uh, being a little bit troublesome, which only happens once a week, thank. Dad has to come out of his place to discipline him. And God the Father is here described as coming out of his place as the iniquities on the earth are exposed. Now I want us, as we have seen, that God is granting great patience. God sees all, it will be exposed. I want this to remind us that there is no secret sin. There is nothing that is hidden from the sight of God. Hebrews reminds us of this no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now, as we as we reflect upon this section, as upon this passage, the fact that all iniquity will be brought out, that God is going to come out of his place, our faith should have a response to this. Now, our Westminster Confession reminds us that as the person of faith reads the scriptures, that our faith acts differently upon each passage as it is appropriate. That when we read the passage of scripture, our faith yields obedience to a command. It yields a trembling at the threatenings. It yields a embracing of the promises that are given. And so simultaneously we can tremble at a threatening but embrace a promise that's here. Because remember this, God sees every sin. There is no secret sin, which means also that God is able to forgive completely and utterly. Did you ever think about the omniscience of God as having that effect? God sees and knows all, That doesn't just mean that he knows every fact and everything that's going on. Because of his omniscience, he knows every one of your sins and is able to wipe them out completely. Have you ever thought about how many sins you don't even remember or know that you've ever even committed? God sees them all. They're not hidden, and they are forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ. The wicked are described as being wiped from remembrance. In verse 14, at the end of verse 14, you have visited them with destruction and wiped out all remembrance of them. There's some themes of remembrance that you'll see paralleled in a couple passages here. Rather than being wiped out from remembrance, wouldn't you rather have God wipe out all of your sins from remembrance? That's what is promised here. When well, we see not only the present and future wicked, Isaiah also goes back and forth in describing the present and future righteous. Um, the present and future righteous have a level way. Look in verse seven. "The path of the righteous is level you make level the way of the righteous. The path is described as being smooth. Uh, Forest Gate's shared driveway on the west that's being redone. When it's been icy, uh, no less than two times have I slid down into the road. You may have as well. Thank God that no traffic was coming at that moment. The driveway needs to be leveled. And it is, thank God. <laughs> Careful in the snow before it's finished being leveled. We need a level way so that we don't slip and slide down into self-injury and destruction. And God is described as the one who is leveling the way. You make level the way of the righteous. And I want us to remember this, to reflect on this moment, this verse, the one who leveled the way, the one who made the the path level, that is Jesus Christ himself. He is described as the one doing all of our works. Well, it's not explicitly Jesus, but look in verse 12. You will ordain peace for us, for you have indeed done for us all our works. Isn't that again an interesting way to phrase something? God has done for us our works. They're they're, they're our works, but they're described as being done for us. And there's a twofold way we can think about this. One, yes, we can think about God being the one who works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. But this also reminds us of the imputed righteousness of Christ, that his work is done on our behalf for us. In that sense, you, God, through Jesus, through his sinless life, has done for us all the works that we haven't done. He is the true Israel. You see him withstanding all, that, that, all of the temptations of the devil in the desert that the, that's, that the Old Testament Israel succumbed to. Jesus is the real, true, better Israel that is resisting the temptations that Israel itself did not you have done for us all our works. The present and future righteous are described here as also yearning and seeking and remembering. Look in several of the verses, eight and nine, in the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. And look in verse 13 our Lord our God other lords besides you have ruled over us but your name alone we bring to remembrance that there the people of God have this yearning for God that while he is with us there's still a sense in which we desire more we desire the full presence full communion of God we desire his name to be brought to remembrance rather than bringing other things to remembrance even the Lord's, even the afflictions that have lorded over us, in a sense, the righteous can forget about them because we bring your name to remembrance, O Lord. But I want us to notice this also in this passage. Look in verse 9 and see the nature of this seeking. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you now here it is, for or because, when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. Now that's contrasted with the next verse that, in which the favor that God shows to the wicked is being taken for granted. But notice Isaiah prays and speaks both. He is earnestly seeking God On behalf of the wicked in the world that when they see your judgments they would learn righteousness but simultaneously there are many who take it for granted and he prays for God's judgment to fall upon them these three verses here are one example of how we can pray simultaneously against our enemies and for our enemies that there is a sense in which we ask for both. God, would you stop the mouths of the wicked? Would you, would you execute your judgment upon them? But Lord, when you afflict them, when you visit them, would they see that they need you? Would their heart be drawn to you in conversion? Would the result of your wrath being shown not be a hardening of their heart against you, but be a softening of their heart and that you would open their heart by your spirit? This is the way in which we pray for our enemies and at the same time, in a sense, against God's enemies. We can do both. And that's how, as you read the scriptures and you see those imprecatory prayers, a prayer of imprecation is, is a prayer of God judge them, break the teeth of the wicked. But there is a twofold way in which we pray, against but also for, and that's right here in these verses. Isaiah is praying for the inhabitants of the world that they would learn righteousness. Well God's people are also the, the present and future wicked are in present distress and praying for deliverance. Look in verse 16. Isaiah is describing the people of Israel. O Lord in distress they sought you, they poured out a whisper prayer, a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. That as God's discipline was upon Israel, Israel cries out in prayer. Matthew Henry I loved on this particular section. He says, see our need of our afflictions. Before, before affliction, prayer came drop by drop. And now, They pour out. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. Comes like water from a fountain. Afflictions bring us to secret prayer. Now this prayer is, you know, a whispered prayer, but it also is in a sense loud, screaming loud. Isaiah uses his own illustration. I didn't have to come up with one. Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs. I'm in verse 17, when she is near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. He describes God's people as wailing, crying out like you're in labor. But they're not only in distress, not only praying for deliverance, unfortunately, at least in this present moment, they're disappointed. Verse 18, we were pregnant. We writhed, but we have given birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. God's people praying for deliverance, but it hasn't hasn't happened. The enemy hasn't fallen. The inhabitants of the world have not fallen. The disappointment And grief, Isaiah is grabbing onto, put it bluntly, Isaiah is grabbing onto the concept of a miscarriage to describe the great pain and disappointment that God's people feel when we aren't delivered. A side note of application here, how tenderly we should treat those who have gone through what Isaiah is describing here. Some of us know this reality more than others. But Isaiah's main point isn't to talk about how we should treat parents who have lost a child. Isaiah is using that as the expression of great disappointment for not seeing deliverance. The church and its people go through times when there is no temporal deliverance. These people won't stop oppressing me. Work is still terrible. This sickness is not going away and it may never go away. My relationship is still rocky. It's not getting better. I feel like someone who is wanting to give birth and I'm in pain, but there's nothing. That's what Isaiah is describing. And in times when there is no temporal deliverance, Isaiah turns our eyes to the eternal future resurrection in that next verse, verse 19, your dead shall live. Isaiah switches in verse 18 from the present distress, no deliverance to, fast forward far in the future, your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy for your dew is a dew of light and the earth will give birth to the, to the dead. Isaiah speaks of, notice that there's a contrast here in a couple of these verses. Isaiah is speaking of the future resurrection of the dead of God's people who are in present affliction. And he speaks of the present wicked as if they are already dead. In verse 14, they are dead. They will not live. They are shades, they will not rise. To that end you you have visited them with destruction. The tale of two peoples, one is spoken of as if they are already whispered away. No more remembrance. The other, God's people, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. Isaiah calls us to look at eternal deliverance, that there will be a resurrection of my body. There will be a resurrection of my relationships. Did you ever think about that? That it is not simply our bodies that are restored. Our relationships with one another are perfected. Our working relationships, our relationships with our parents, our siblings, our sons and daughters, brothers and sisters in the Lord, everything will be restored. It's hard. It's hard not feeling temporal deliverance. But there will be a day when there is eternal deliverance. And because we can look to that in the future, it affects us now, how we deal with it now. Uh... I was preparing this sermon this week, going through this passage, and my best friend Adam is is texting me simultaneously because his mom is dying. Uh, She died this past Tuesday. I I actually fly out this afternoon to Illinois, pray for me. Uh, And he's texting me. And his mom became a believer 15 months ago because of her, essentially, the, one of the impetuses was her diagnosis. Being diagnosed with glioblastoma of the brain, brain cancer, she saw her own mortality and came to Christ 15 months ago. And my best friend Adam is texting me. He says, My mom is a couple hours from meeting Christ face to face. Some time goes by, and he says, It happened she's with the Lord. And that became a very tangible example to me of how someone sitting there with a dying parent is embracing the promise of a future resurrection and how it affected him right in that very moment. For the Christian, I don't remember where this quote even comes from, but I try to never forget it. Even death is transformed into a blessing. The the statement, death, where is thy sting? Grave, where is thy victory? Is really true, not just because it has no more sting and has no victory, but also because it is now completely the opposite of what it was. Death is transformed into a blessing as someone goes to be with the Lord. No matter how bad things get, no matter how hard it is for me, no matter what deliverance I'm not yet experiencing, let us look to the future salvation because that can give us peace in our times of present distress and turmoil. Let's pray. Our God, we do thank you for the promise of your resurrection. We cry out with Isaiah, Lord, that we would long to see your churches full, that we would long for your enemies to be brought to Christ. But we recognize that there may be times where the inhabitants of the world, our enemies, they do not fall and they do not convert. And we are still sore oppressed, not only by sin from without, but sin from within. And so, Lord, we ask that you would give us an eye on the eternal, an eye to the future salvation and resurrection, that a time whenever all things are restored and every tear is wiped away, that we can look forward to that and that it would affect us now as we live our lives. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.